Well, good morning, citizens. It's a uh, it's an absolute joy to be here. Like uh, Rob said, my name's Trent. I serve on staff at Linworth Baptist Church, but I am tremendously thankful and excited about what the Lord's doing uh, here at Citizens. Uh, we had, Rob, I don't know how long ago that was, you came to one of our members meetings a few months ago. Few months ago we had Rob come and just give an update to our church about... Uh, what was going, what the, what the Lord's been doing in and through citizens. And so we spent some time praying for you all. So you are near and dear, not only to my heart, but our, but our church's heart as well uh, over in Worthington. And so we are tremendously thankful. We don't view each other as competitors, but very much so as teammates and co-laborers in Christ to churches working together uh, for God's glory and the expansion of his kingdom. So I'm, I'm incredibly excited uh, to be here this morning and very, very thankful for the opportunity as well. So uh, if you have a Bible, you're welcome to open up to Mark 11, 27 through 33. And as it was just read, it's also in the bulletin that you can find on page six as well. July 1986, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Private First Class William Alvarado was an upstanding citizen and soldier that began to take note of some of the illegal activities and poor living conditions uh, on base. And, you know, being committed uh, to the truth and justice of what he was seeing going on at base, he wrote to a Texas congressman uh, explaining what he had seen, some of the illegal activities, uh, most notably uh, illegal gunfire across the border into Cuba. And as a result, he wanted a transfer from the base. Now, when word had got out that uh, one of the soldiers on base had kind of gone behind uh, his supervisor's back, that he had uh, reported it to a politician, the quality of life, word got out uh, to the other soldiers that they had been tattled on. They weren't exactly uh, excited about this whistleblowing activity that was going on base. And so they determined that they wanted to do something about it, to let William Alvarado know that they were watching him and that maybe he shouldn't have done it. So the soldiers decided to call a code red. Code red. It was an internal term that was used uh, to explain or to, to take care of a situation uh, or somebody in particular that was not keeping up instead with the rest of the group. It was their way of essentially attempting to haze him, bully him into silence so that he wouldn't talk about this activity anymore. Because it, what had happened was is that this report that had gone out uh, started to look like a blemish on their character. It made uh, the recruiting process more challenging. It made, uh, most importantly to them, their future careers in jeopardy. So they called a code red, but things didn't go as planned. At 1.30 in the morning, they had pulled William Alvarado out of his room. They had tied him up and had planned to shave him bald as a form of punishment. And in the process, William Alvarado started to choke really badly to the point that he was looking blue in the face and it was apparent that he was probably going to die that they, the base's bullies, went out to the medical staff on base and had to kind of own up to this situation that they were in. And thankfully, William Alvarado did not die. But I tell you this because there is an irony that's in this. 
a, a naval base that to the outside world is supposed to be, you know, a, a symbol of protection to the outside world, internally had become a place of abuse. In reality, their commitments to preserve themselves and their future careers blinded them from reality. You know, every single one of us has commitments. You know, th- this is obvious. You, you might be uh, committed uh, to working for a company. If, if you're a husband, you're committed to uh, your, your spouse, right? If you're an athlete, you're committed to a university or a college to play a sport and wear their uh, university name on your jersey. But sometimes there's more personal and selfish commitments, you know? Like, like some of us are committed to the Ohio State Buckeyes that we're tempted to skip church the next morning after a night game, you know? Or, or, or maybe uh, you're committed to a TV show that when it comes out, you say to yourself, I'm going to watch every episode as soon as they all come out. Now, what's less obvious, however, is when these commitments blind us from the truth and reality around us. We're so set on what we're committed to that we might be even willing to cut corners. You might think to yourself, oh, you no, know, I am so committed to getting an A in this class that I'm even willing to cheat to get that A. And it, it doesn't even register in your mind that that might be morally incorrect. You might be so committed to Coca-Cola that when you go to Chipotle and you, you ask for a cup, you tell them, this is just for water. But then you go and get Coca-Cola as well. Or you're like these soldiers on Guantanamo Bay who are so committed to themselves and their future careers that they were willing to attack the innocent who exposed their guilt. Strong commitments have serious consequences. Strong commitments have serious consequences. And today, our passage that that we read in Mark 11 is a passage about exposing our heart's commitments. And it's about exposing what all of our hearts are committed to. And as you've been walking through uh, the book of Mark, you have officially kind of entered into a a landmark uh, part of the story. The second half of the story, Jesus is in Jerusalem, right? You remember at the beginning of of Mark 11 that there is this triumphal entry. Jesus comes riding in on a donkey, uh, fulfilling prophecies about uh, the coming anointed one. He, He sees a fig tree and curses it. Then he goes into the table and and flips tables. And then he comes back to see the fig tree uh, as he predicted and and even commanded. There was no fruit on the fig tree, which takes us to our interaction today in Mark 11, 27 through 33. So uh, before we continue to dive into this passage, I'm going to pray one last time for us and then we'll dive in together. Okay. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for Citizens Church. We pray, Lord, that they would be an embassy of heaven to the outside world. We pray for all of us that this would be a a corporate effort right now as we look into your word. And we pray, Father, that by your, your Holy Spirit, you would open our heart's eyes to see and behold new things Convict us, Lord, of the ways that we have fallen short. I pray, Father, for myself, I would step out of the way and that it would just be your word 
actively working in this church. And we pray, Lord, it would be for your glory. And it's in your son Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. So at first glance, you might have noticed it seems like this is a little bit of an odd ending, right? It's a pretty straightforward passage. Look, look, at, look at either the bulletin or, or your Bible in front of you. You know, uh, Jesus comes, him and his disciples come again into Jerusalem. The Jews ask Jesus a question. Then Jesus asks a question. The Jews don't really answer Jesus' question. And so Jesus doesn't really answer theirs, right? So at first glance, it seems so simple, but there is a lot more going on here. Not if we look at what is being said necessarily, but particularly who is saying it. So for our time together this morning, we're going to look at three points as we examine this. You can follow along in your bulletin. I think that's page, it's page seven. Uh, the, the, the first point is authority questioned. Second point will be question exposed. And the third point is request granted. Authority questioned, question exposed, and request granted. So first point, authority questioned. You know, I have the privilege of being on staff at Linworth, like uh, Rob and I had said earlier, and I actually oversee the college ministry at the church. And so by nature of running into college students, you know, uh, a lot of them are involved with fraternities and sororities. And I, I hang out with several, several uh, young guys that are in fraternities, and there's kind of this cliche that happens at fraternity parties from time to time when a guest shows up to a party. And the host kind of walks to the door, sees this stranger, uh, someone he does not recognize, and there's kind of this cliche line as someone enters in, and they say, who do you know here, bro? That's, that's kind of the, the cliche line that sometimes we'll joke with each other at church or at various restaurants and stuff like that together. And although that's a silly comparison, that actually is basically the, 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 the roles that we see happening here in Jerusalem. We see the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, and they see themselves as the host to what is basically a giant party in Jerusalem during this time of the Passover. You see, there's a, a, a huge influx of people that would go on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate uh, the Passover feast. And so I wasn't here for Rob's uh, sermons, or, or I'm not sure who I'll preach the past couple weeks. Uh, so maybe it was explained to you, or maybe you know this from your own study of the Bible, why there was kind of the temple had gotten turned into this marketplace of sorts. And the reason why is that oftentimes, uh, markets would be set up in the temple during the time of the Passover because uh, they would be selling Israelite-approved sacrifices or animals that would be later held up as sacrifices to God. And what was interesting about this is oftentimes uh, the priests and the scribes and the elders of the temple would oftentimes skim a little bit off of the top. They would inflate the prices on here. So Jesus, for example, is not just upset that there is a market that has been set up in, uh, the, in the temple. It's not that Jesus is worried about geography here. He also notices uh, that there is unfair prices. The prices are getting inflated so that the religious leaders can benefit off those uh, in the pilgrimage. You can see that uh, earlier when Jesus in verse 17 of Mark 11 refers to the temple now as a den of robbers. So Jesus rebukes them saying that the temple was supposed to be a house of prayer for all of the nations. 
And so as the nations were coming in this pilgrimage into the temple, instead of being taken in by the people of God, they were being taken advantage of. So the closest illustration that I can think of about this about myself is I'm from Dublin, uh, Dublin, Ohio. It's the second largest Irish festival that happens every year. It's right before, uh, you know, it's right before the school year. And there was kind of this implicit code that at the Irish festival, you would, you know, this is, this is the last week of summertime. You're going to dress up nice. You're going to show up and you enjoy being seen. You basically go for the Instagram photos. That's, that's what it was, right? And so very similarly, uh, based off Jesus' previous rebukes, we can see that the priests and the scribes and the elders, they liked being seen in the temple. You know, as they pass by people, they like being noticed as, oh, that's one of the leaders here. Except for what's different about my interaction uh, at the Irish festival is there is a monetary compensation that the priests are. They enjoy their status. They have made money off of their status. So understandably, when Jesus comes in as a guest to their party, so to speak, or at least that might have been how they might have viewed it, they aren't particularly excited about that. So instead of trying to cause commotion, right after Jesus flips tables, they don't go up and try to stop immediately and say, hey, whoa, what are you doing? This is, this is our event. They wait. Jesus goes out of the temple. And so in verse 27, they come back in again to Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples. And that is while he's walking around the temple is when the Jews, these Jewish leaders come up to him. And in verse 28, they ask him, who do you know here, bro? That's obviously not what they ask him, but that's the gist of it. They say in verse 28, by what authority are you doing these things or who gave you this authority to do them? You know, it's without question uh, why these leaders ask this. Jesus walks in to Jerusalem, their party, and the record scratches. It kind of interrupts the flow of their well-oiled machines. And what's fascinating about this is that the Jews are interested in trying to trick him in a game of name-dropping. They think if you know the right people, you know, maybe we'll let you slide. Their beef with Jesus is about authority. What gives you, Jesus, the right to call the shots around here? How do you view God's authority in your life? Are you submissive or are you allergic to it? You know, as you read the Bible and your own devotions and you read about God's commands, uh, about dying to yourself or about loving your enemies, do you respond joyously or begrudgingly? You know, I've read on the internet hilarious stories about celebrities being in public and they don't get recognized or they get uh, mistakenly identified as a different celebrity. So in 2016, President Obama had called in uh, uh, Ellen DeGeneres to come in and receive an award. And when Ellen DeGeneres showed up to the gate, they didn't let her in because she didn't have her ID on her. Right? Or Tony Hawk, the professional skateboarder, oftentimes gets stopped. He tweets about this all the time. He gets stopped all the time and people ask him, has anyone ever told you that you look like the professional skateboarder, Tony Hawk? And he responds all the time. That's what he says. One time, a guard at a military base was told, let no one in 
on any grounds whatsoever. And so when one individual was guarding this gate, as he was commanded, not letting anyone in, he began to be frustrated that someone kept saying, let me in, let me in, let me in, to the point that this guard cussed out this individual and told him to leave. It wasn't until later his supervisor told him, do you realize who you just turned away? That was Secretary of Defense Dick Cheney. If there's anyone that is qualified to be allowed into this gate, it's the Secretary of Defense. So here's the point that I'm trying to make here, is when we get uncomfortable, when we have to submit to God's commands and are tempted to ask the question, do, do I have to? Really, the question we are asking is, do I know you? God, do I know you? The Jews knew exactly what Jesus was doing. What they didn't know was who he was. At least they didn't recognize him as their God. So them asking Jesus in Jerusalem or us asking God about his law in our lives, if we have to, or questioning that authority is, is, like, uh, is like us being sentenced in a courtroom after a verdict by a judge and us responding saying, says who? Right? It, it just doesn't add up. This morning, we must remind ourselves as we look into this passage, God is the creator. We are his creatures. He is the king and we are his subjects. He ordered the universe. And so by nature of our DNA, we are to be submissive to God's law and rule in our lives. What's unique about God's authority compared to other authority, though, is that God's authority is always for your best interest. It is always for your best interest. You know, even think about how eerily similar this passage is to the Garden of Eden, right? Uh, God creates man and woman in his image. There's no sin in the world, but God exercises his authority and says, you can eat of all of the trees except for one, right? He's exercising authority, and man, was it for their good. This will kill you. On that day, you will surely die. So think about the connections here. Adam the first son of God in the dwelling place of God, the first temple, the first son of God in the first temple. And Satan comes in and questions the authority that's being charged on him. He says, I'm not allowed to eat from this tree. And Satan says, says who? This authority is not for your good. God does not want you to be like him. Satan tries to twist and distort God's commands in our law that they are oppressive and not for our flourishing. So in the same way that Adam was tempted to view himself like God and therefore at liberty to pick and choose what commands he will abide by, we too are tempted with that very same temptation. And so we must recognize if we want to submit to God's commands, we must first recognize who it is that is commanding us and who is being commanded. God is king and we are his subjects. A life of joyfully obeying God is one of joyfully knowing God. 
and who he is. And so for us to best know God and to trust his authority over our life, we must be on guard against the various temptations and other rivaling commitments in our lives. Which leads us to our second point, the question exposed. Question exposed. So here, Jesus is wise enough to realize that the Jews aren't actually interested in the question uh, they present to him. This is, not, this is not the first time that these religious leaders have heard about Jesus. It is not as if they are walking up to him and genuinely like, hey, I've never seen you before and I don't know anything about you. Uh, where are you from? You know, that's, that's not what's going on here. And the reason we know that is because look at verse 18. Look at uh, uh, chapter 11, verse 18. It says, and the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So to make this point then, instead of answering their question that Jesus knows their underlying commitments and motivations, Jesus, embodying the wisdom of God, asks a question back to them and says, I'll answer yours if you answer mine. And so he asked them a simple question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? He does that in verse 30. What I love about this interaction is that Jesus asked this group, you know, I don't know how many there was, but, you know, it says the chief priests, scribes, and the elders. So at, at least it might be three. And they're coming up to approach Jesus, and they got a question to him. Jesus asked them a question, and they think to themselves, okay, before we answer this, we got to huddle up and talk about this to make sure that we don't sound like an idiot, right? So it says they discussed it with one another. Just picture the scene. Jesus asked this group of individuals, and they say, one second, and they call a timeout. And they're talking about it in front of him, as if Jesus doesn't know what's going on, right? Here, here's an important reminder. You cannot whisper about any sins in your life. You might think there are sins in your life that are unknown to the world, but take note from this passage this morning. God knows about every single one of them. So if you are here this morning and you are living in sin that you think no one else knows about, be assured God knows about all of them. And I want to challenge you. Confess that sin. Bring it to the light and share that with brothers and sister, sisters Excuse me, in Christ. But it's in this huddle that the Jewish leaders uh, reveal uh, what they are primarily concerned about, right? They're concerned about themselves. Uh, look at uh, verse 32. It goes on to say uh, that they were afraid of the people. But did you, did you notice that in verse 18, we just read that the Jewish leaders were afraid of Jesus. They were afraid of Jesus a second ago, not in a God-honoring fear type of way. But they also are afraid of the crowd. And the root reason, the, the, the exposure of this question is that the Jews, the Jewish leaders here, are primarily committed to themselves and their status. They, they didn't like that the crowd began to leave their authority to follow Jesus. So naturally, they questioned it. You might have noticed that this is a theme uh, throughout the, the book of Mark. We see throughout the Jewish leaders that fear is often dominating their actions. And their fear 
actually exposes their greatest love. That can be a helpful diagnostic for us sometimes. If you are incredibly afraid of a certain area of your life, you can ask the flip of that question and saying, what am I afraid to lose that I love? That's been a helpful question, diagnostic for my own soul this week. But we see this theme throughout the book of Mark, right? When John the Baptist was, uh, was preaching and, and going about his ministry. It's interesting. Herod, the king, was intrigued by John the Baptist. He, he actually heard him and, and was interested in what he had to say. So you don't have to flip there, but if you're taking notes in and, and, and Mark 6, verse 20, it says, For Herod feared John the Baptist, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe, because when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. And it wasn't until uh, the request from somebody else that John the Baptist was to be beheaded, that King Herod had to go against his own interest to uh, John the Baptist. His commitment to himself and what others thought about him is displayed in verse 26. It says, The king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. His commitment was clearly to himself. And that's the same we see in the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. So, as we mentioned earlier, we must recognize that for us to truly follow and to submit God, we must know Him personally, understand His character. But we also must ask ourselves, what, what am I committed to? That would be a great conversation to ask your spouse or your fiancé or your neighbor at the community meal after this, or even as you go on a walk this week. What is a rivaling uh, commitment that I have in my life? At Citizens Church, you all, uh, the members here at Citizens, have committed to one another through your church covenant. You know, I was looking on your website, and it says here, we will walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church, exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other, and faithfully admonish and treat one another as occasion may acquire. Praise the Lord. We are not on our own to identify our own blind spots. Instead, God has given you all one another to exercise affectionate care and admonish one another as it may be required. So it, it might be worth asking yourself additionally today, am I invested enough in this church community that should I have a blind spot, a brother or a sister could call me out on it? Because if you are not known by your brothers and sisters, no one can exercise affectionate care over your soul. And in a similar question related, would you welcome that correction? Right? It doesn't seem that people were ready to be corrected here in the temple in Jerusalem. Because if we don't watch ourselves and over one another, there are serious consequences to our commitments. Which takes us to our third point. Request granted. Request granted. So now the ending of this passage is fascinating. The chief priests, scribes, and elders go into complete damage control mode. Jesus is asking them a question, you know, and they, they don't even give a response uh, of, the, of the answers that they're prompted with. 
Jesus says it's, it's an either or question. It's either man or from heaven. What do you think? And they take a third uh, uh, area, third path of least resistance and say, we don't know. They don't answer his question. And as a result, uh, Jesus doesn't answer theirs. He says, neither will I tell you, but what, what authority I do these things. And you know, while it seems like Jesus doesn't give them what they want, let, let's just take note that Jesus is giving them exactly what they want, actually. Right? These folks do not want Jesus, so Jesus does not give himself to them. This was no small talk. They were seeking to destroy him. What they were interested in was themselves. And so what's fascinating, in the eyes of these Jewish leaders, in that huddle, they're thinking we need to act uh, because of our pride and our commitment to people-pleasing. This will actually be an act of self-preservation. But really, their commitment to themselves, their pride and people-pleasing proves to be an act of self-condemnation. I was reading in my quiet time yesterday uh, in the book of Proverbs chapter 1 and was struck by how similar these leaders sound like the sinners presented in Proverbs 1. Writing to uh, uh, his son, the author says, "If my son, if sinners entice you, that we'll go and rob people and we'll go into all of these areas and accumulate wealth and treasures for ourselves. Don't listen to them and gives him this warning. He, said, he warns his son, their eyes are so fixated on their stolen treasures that's right in front of their nose. They can't see 10 feet ahead to the, the, the consequences that will lead to death. In Proverbs 1, 17 through 19, it says this, for in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. They had uh, the opportunity to get to know uh, God personally. These Jewish leaders did. They had an opportunity to repent of their motives as they saw Jesus. And he asked them their question and they doubled down, thinking self-preservation. But it actually led to self-condemnation. None of the chief priests and the scribes and elders thought that this interaction was how it was going to go. They wanted to go up, get his, uh, his defense on record, and then immediately take it to the courts so they could put him on trial. Instead, they showed up to ask a question, and it actually led to their condemnation. Strong commitments lead to serious consequences. But what's noteworthy about that uh, that principle, strong commitments have serious consequences, is you can be strongly committed to the right thing and enjoy commitments. Ser you can enjoy serious consequences that are for your good, right? You can be strongly committed to Jesus Christ by trusting in him as, as, as your king and you are the subject and have great consequences of time with him, a life with him. But the issue is, is that none of us have been. That, that hasn't been the case of any single one of us. All of us have commitments that have long rivaled our life, our commitment to Jesus. In fact, we have made life all about ourselves. 
our own pleasures and our own glory. And because of that, we don't deserve a second chance. In fact, the only thing that we do deserve is condemnation in hell forever. God is the just ruling creator king over all of the earth and over all of our souls. And we do not deserve a second chance at all. But what's amazing in the book of Mark is that we do see that there is a second chance that gets extended to me and you, right? Later in the book of Mark, another questioning would happen to Jesus, right? Another questioning. Jesus would be put under trial and asked about his authority. He'll be later asked, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Except this time, Jesus will answer more explicitly. And he will say, I am. I am the Christ, the son of the blessed. Thinking back to Guantanamo Bay, think about private first class William Alvarado. His, uh, those bullies on that base that tied him up and were going to haze him were arrested immediately after that. But could you picture how unfathomable it would be if William Alvarado stepped up in that court and said, hey, actually, you know what? I'll serve, I'll serve the time in jail. I'm the one. No, that, that is not how it should go. But praise the Lord that Jesus Christ, the innocent, went to the cross on our behalf. We are the ones that are guilty and are deserving of a just sentence in hell forever. But Jesus, in his kindness, was willing to live a perfectly obedient life, perfectly obedient to all the commands of God, and would die on the cross in your place, in my place, in our place, that all who trust in him, trust in Jesus, who rose again three days later, proving dominion, and power over the grave and over sin could have eternal life in the forgiveness of all of your sins, all of our sins. Jesus' confession of his authority, that he is the the Christ, son of the blessed, shows what his commitment is to, right? The glory of God through the salvation of people. Hallelujah. Jesus was willing to commit his life for our salvation. That's the good news, the gospel. It's the bedrock of the church. And it's only that when we begin to grasp onto this this good news of the gospel, that it actually will change our life. You know, you might be sitting here thinking to yourself, I'm interested in being committed to God, but to be honest, I don't want to. I'm honestly, I don't even really want to want to commit my life to God. And as we mentioned earlier, it says something about our knowledge of him. And so our encouragement today is if we are withering in some of our areas of obedience or even excitement to serve the Lord in the various areas that he has called us, we should spend much time. In fact, a a lifetime's worth amount of time meditating and pondering the cross where justice and mercy intersect for our salvation. And when we begin to look at the cross, we begin to see the perfect justice and glory of God 
That is how you get to know God, is by pondering the cross. By pondering the cross. In his book, uh, Knowing God by J.I. Packer, if you haven't read it, you totally should. You totally should read that book. The first three chapters I was reading, I'm meeting with some college guys right now, and it's just lighting me up. As I'm reading through this, I'm blown away that obeying God is so closely connected to our knowledge of him. Uh, Packer writes this, there is certainly a great cause of humility thinking about the cross and the thought that he sees all the twisted things about me that my fellow humans do not see and that he sees more corruption in me than that which I see in myself. There is, however, equally great incentive to worship and love God in the thought that for some unfathomable reason, he wants me as his friend and desires to be my friend and has given his son to die for me in order to realize this purpose. If you want fuel for the Christian life, look at the cross of Christ. This morning, you might, if you haven't already trusted in Jesus as your savior, why not today? You can only huddle up and think about your thoughts about God for so long. But take this warning this morning that if you have not repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus as your Savior, the answer, I don't know, will not suffice when Jesus returns in judgment. As we close this morning, we've looked at chief priests and scribes and elders interaction with Jesus, and we're thankful to remind us that our story doesn't have to be like theirs. Instead, we can have fellowship with God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And only until we know who God is, for who he describes himself to be in his word, we will struggle to be committed to him. And when we're tempted uh, to be committed to our selfish desires and pleasures, we can foster that commitment by meditating on the cross of Christ, where Jesus displays his commitment to us. And what about Citizens Church? How does this apply to you all? Well, what a joyous privilege that God has called Citizens Church to be a new temple. The, the new dwelling place of God that will be a house of prayer to all the nations. As you come together for the right preaching of God's word, baptism, and the Lord's Supper, it is a new dwelling place of God. And the prayer is for this church that it would become such a unique and unexplainable fellowship to the world that Christ would be magnified in your fellowship. That instead of coming in to be taken advantage of, the nations would come here to this dwelling place of God to be taken in where you have an opportunity not to be a den of robbers, but you get the opportunity to display to them and explain to them a prescription to their soul's disease. Grace and peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can have grace and peace through your Son, Jesus Christ. We, we ask, Lord, that to... This morning's meditation on your cross 
would fill our hearts with a divine energy to follow you and obey you in all areas of our life. Help us, Holy Spirit, to see you more clearly. And we pray, Father, that as, as a church, that the saints here at Citizens would think about their own rivaling commitments and would think about their commitment to one another and would continue to exercise affectionate care and admonish one another until you return. That this would be a place for all of the nations to come in to see God. And we pray it would be all for your glory. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen.